Hello again, this is Professor Koslowski, and as I was anticipating, I figured I'd go ahead and record a couple of lectures to uh, guide us through the Euthyphro, since it is a very dense text and there's a lot there that I want to sort of focus on and pick out and uh, help you see for when uh, we're writing the analysis paper in the next couple of weeks. Um, because this is a really dense text. Um, I know that we're taking it really slow, and I'm only asking that you read uh, four pages a week, but those four pages are packed. Um, Plato is famously interested in sort of accomplishing a whole bunch of tasks at once in his work. Um, and even more than most of the philosophers we're going to be reading in here, he, he has a very literary quality insofar as he's introducing all of these sort of themes and sub-themes and plots and counterplots, all within the context of a few pages and in the structure of this little dialogue format that he himself very much pioneered and um, created in his own right. So you'll notice that this, this doesn't proceed like a traditional story. There's no description. There's no sort of uh, monologuing or narrative interjection. This is literally just a dialogue in the same sense that like you could read a play and it's just the characters talking to each other. Um, and it's surprising how much that he can actually do with that. Like through the conversation, you get these glimpses of bigger things sort of lurking under the surface. And when you would think that this would be a sort of straightforward, uh, you know, question and answer, question and answer, uh, sort of approach. Instead, you know, they're all over the place. It proceeds more like a real conversation and less like an actual philosophical inquiry, even though all of these objectives are accomplished. Um, so I'm sitting here with my notes open and with my, uh, with my textbook. I recommend that you do the same for this uh, lecture, just so you can follow along and see all the sort of things that I'm picking out and be able to take your own notes and recognize um, like which, which components of the text are really important, as well as sort of pick up on all the other stuff that I'm going to be bringing into this. Um, See, Plato's writing in ancient Greece. This text was originally written in ancient Greek. We're talking about like circa 300-400 BCE, so close to 2,500 years ago at this point. Um, and Plato really is sort of the first major philosopher in the Western canon. Um, in fact, like there have been philosophers since who have said that literally the entire history of philosophy is just a series of footnotes to Plato. Um, he is that huge. He is that important. Um, I mean, you look at the you look at the uh, the table of contents at the front of this book, and nearly a hundred pages are devoted to Plato alone, which is pretty impressive given the fact that we've only got about fifteen hundred to play with. Um, but Plato wrote a ton of dialogues all with various objectives, all with various, um, with various uh, sort of philosophical questions at the forefront. Um, so the Euthyphro, as I hope you've picked up, since I hope that you've read the four pages before listening to the text, the Euthyphro is primarily talking about piety. That's the question that we're dealing with. And by piety that we mean um, holiness, it is often translated as well. Uh, we're talking about sort of like being a responsible religious participant, um, being respectful to the gods. So what Plato is sort of playing with here is what does it look like to be pious? Um, who is pious? Is Socrates pious? Is Euthyphro pious? And how does that piety actually look? How does it pan out? Um, 
But if that's sort of the text, then we need to start by concentrating on the subtext, on what's on what's going on in the mind of Plato and in the mind of his average reader at this point in time in ancient Greece. Because the thing about ancient Greece is that it was it was small. Um, everybody knew each other. Uh, Plato was one of the many Athenian citizens interested in art and literature and culture at the time. Um, and it's a city-state in the sense that it's a, it's a small community. Um, we're talking about maybe a few thousand people, not counting slaves and, you know, sort of personas non grata. Athens was a fascinating sort of society in its own right. It was the first ever democracy. Um, like I, you've probably heard in high school about, you know, how sort of the history of America happens and we'll, you'll frequently have people pointing back to Athens and Rome as sort of the foundation of classical democracy and that being the inspiration for the founding fathers in our own democratic republic. Um, but part of being in a democracy meant that um, politics and like social interaction were very much the same thing. Um, everybody you spent time with, everybody you lived with, they were your neighbors, they were your friends, they were your rivals, they were the people who were participating in the democratic process when you met in the demos and voted on various, you know, legislation or policy or whatever you decided to do. You know, the way that you got political power was you convinced your friends or your rivals or your neighbors to follow along with what you were doing. So as a result, literally everybody knows everybody um, because everybody's interacting with everybody. Everybody's seeing each other on a very regular basis. Everybody knows, you know, so-and-so never votes to spend more money than he can afford to because he's stingy or so-and-so always wants to, you know, increase the Navy because he's got a clear interest in shipbuilding. Um, these are just sort of things that are universally recognized by the people of Athens. And as a result, people like Socrates, people like Plato, even people like Euthyphro are well known. Everybody knows who these people are. Um, so when Plato takes these characters, what he's really doing is he's sort of like recreating events that everybody is already familiar with. He's telling old stories in a manner of speaking. And not just like stories about mythic figures like Hercules or Zeus. He's talking about like people that these people knew. Um, Plato is the generation after Socrates. So we're talking about like your father's good friends in a manner of speaking. Um, and the conversation between Socrates and Euthyphro are two well-known citizens of Athens, but in a certain specific context. Now you'll notice when the dialogue opens, um, both Euthyphro and Socrates meet at um, the King Archon's court, which that's very much where the, the legal battles of the day would be introduced. This is before they would be presented to the Demos for judgment or before they would be presented to an Archon for judgment. Um, this is sort of like the initial hearing. If you have a complaint against one of your citizens, this is where you would go. And what's interesting is both Euthyphro and Socrates have complaints. Socrates has a complaint against him, Euthyphro has a complaint that he's bringing, um, and they are both presenting their cases to the King Archon for judgment. Um, but again, we should be conscious, especially further in the text when we start talking about piety, this is also a piety thing. Um, we usually think of courts and the law and, you know, various forms of government as being a purely secular institution, that whole separation of church and state thing. Um, 
But in ancient Greece, that separation did not exist. There was a certain amount of religious freedom that was allowed to the citizens, and, you know, that's a whole other conversation in itself, like how myths work and how myths are examined by this culture. But at the same time, like, if you were bringing a charge against someone, it could just as easily be a civil or a criminal charge as it could be a religious one. Like, you could say, you know, so-and-so murdered someone, but the reason why so-and-so murdered someone is a bad thing has less to do with whatever the law says as the fact that there are some there are probably some gods who were offended or implicated in some way. So if you murder, like, the oracle at Delphi, this would be a horrific monstrosity of an action. It would be an abomination against Apollo. So the issue wouldn't be, like, murder is bad so much as um, that murdering this person would offend the gods and make everyone really unhappy and probably bring down catastrophe on the entire nation. So, you know, the... As we'll talk about, like, the society recognizes that murder is bad across the board, but it's usually framed in this context. Like, why is murder bad? Because the gods don't like it. Um, so when Euthyphro and Socrates meet, uh, the, the first conversation that they kind of have, like the opening, is Euthyphro is shocked that someone is charging Socrates with anything. Like, they both meet at the court, they're like, hey, what are you doing? What is, you know, your particular complaint? What is your charge? What's going on? Why are you here? Um, and when Socrates is asked by Euthyphro why he's here, his answer is that um, he's been indicted. He's been indicted by Miletus. So if you look, um, this is the first column in the, in the textbook. This is right around uh, 2C or 2D. He says, um, they call him Miletus, he belongs to the Pythian deem, if you know anyone from that deem called Miletus. And then he goes on to say that the charge is a not ignoble one, for it is no small thing for a young man to have knowledge of such an important subject. He says he knows how our young men are corrupted, and who corrupts them. He is likely to be wise, and when he sees my ignorance corrupting his contemporaries, he proceeds to accuse me to the city as to their mother. I think he is the only one of our public men to start out the right way, for he, it is right to care first that the young should be as good as possible, just as a good farmer is likely to take care of the young plants first and of the others later. So too, Miletus first gets rid of us who corrupt the young shoots, as he says, and then afterwards he will obviously take care of the older ones and become a source of great blessings for the city. So Socrates tells Euthyphro that he is being indicted by Miletus, and Miletus is accusing Socrates of corrupting the youth of Athens. Um, if we look a little bit further down, um, Socrates stresses in, this is 3b, that he is a maker of gods, and on the ground that he creates new gods while not believing in the old gods. He has indicted me for their sake. So to unpack this, because there's a lot even in these couple of passages, um, there's this guy, his name is Miletus, he is charging Socrates with corrupting the youth of Athens, of being impious, and of creating new gods, and not recognizing the old ones. Now, this is actually way bigger than it looks at the outset. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, see, this happened historically. Socrates was a historical figure. He was a major figure in Athens. Lots of people wrote about him. Lots of people had opinions about him. There's even a play called The Clouds by Aristophanes where he, like, legit mocks Socrates, um, for being way too philosophical and having his head in the clouds all the time. Um, but even more importantly, historically, 
Socrates was, in fact, accused of corrupting the youth of Athens. Um, and for that matter, he was convicted and executed. Um, he went to trial. He presented his defense. His defense was not accepted by the Athenian council, and he was executed. He was condemned to drink hemlock and basically to kill himself. Um, and Plato knows this, and Plato is writing about this after it has happened. Uh, the Euthyphro is chronologically before the execution of Socrates, obviously, seeing as he's standing around talking, but this trial was well known among the Athenians. They would all have heard about it, and they all would still have it fresh in their minds. Kind of like, you know, nowadays you get these sort of big public trials, and everybody's sort of aware of them, and the news reports on them all the time. Um, this is kind of that level of um, public, and that level of uh, renowned. But Plato also isn't telling the whole story here, because he doesn't need to. Because everybody is familiar with this, um, he doesn't need to spill out all of the details, so he withholds many of them, and frequently he does this for his own reasons. Um, he wants to sort of say as little as possible, and by doing so, bring to mind to the Athenian citizens all the other details that he's not including. Rhetorically, he uses understatement here to stress his point. So when he says that Socrates is being accused of corrupting the youth of Athens, note that his discussion of Miletus also has sort of like a double edge to it. On the one hand, Socrates says that Miletus is likely to be wise, and it is right to, you know, stop the people who are corrupting the youth, because the youth are important, they're the future, and naturally even the farmer would would keep a, a watch on the young shoots as opposed to the old ones. So Socrates is presenting this case as though he respects Miletus, but at the same time he brings in this detail that it is no small thing for a young man to have knowledge of such an important subject. And this is going to be another one of the major themes throughout this text. Um, Socrates will point out what do people actually know. Um, so for him to say that Miletus has all of this impressive knowledge about the way that you, the youth are corrupted and what corrupts them and who is corrupting them, this is, at the same time, it appears like um, respect and honor, Socrates is also sort of casting doubt on how knowledgeable Miletus actually is. Because for us to say, you know, I know exactly what corrupts the youth of Athens, I know who is corrupting the youth of Athens, I know that this is bad and this is good, that implies a certain amount of what the Greeks would call hubris, um, which is a sort of pride. But even more than sort of we we see pride as like an almost positive thing nowadays, the Greeks saw hubris as being profoundly negative. Um, hubris was pretending like you are godly in your own right. It is forgetting your own place. Um, and it invites the judgment of the gods. It is itself a form of impiety. Um, so for Miletus to say, like, I know exactly what's going on in the minds of the youth, and I know exactly who is a bad influence on the youth, that's a certain sort of hubris from the way that Plato is presenting it. Socrates will never say this directly, he will never accuse Miletus of being too proud or of having hubris, but the implication remains. In his respect is this sort of cutting edge, a sort of irony or satire, uh, a sort of like secondary, uh, secondary intention underlying Socrates' words here. 
But even beyond this presentation, there's a lot of debate about exactly how the historical events went down when it came to Socrates's um, trial and execution. So this is one of the earliest Platonic dialogues, the Euthyphro, and it's part of a series that Plato writes very early on in his career to sort of introduce the character of Socrates, to sort of rehash the events of the trial, and most of these dialogues have to do with the trial. So Euthyphro is obviously about this sort of initial stage when the first uh, charges are being brought against against Socrates, then in the Apology, uh, Plato talks at length about Socrates's own defense, uh, apologia, the, the word apology in Greek actually means defense, not like I'm sorry for what I did. Um, that is a major change that has occurred to the word over the years. But yeah, um, Socrates is not apologizing in the American sense for what he does. He is defending himself. He is saying, this is why I did what I did. Um, then in the Crito, this is uh, the Crito is during Socrates's arrest and imprisonment, and Crito tries to like break him out, but Socrates won't go. And if you want to know why, you can read that dialogue. And then in the Phaedo, which is sort of the last in this in this series, um, Socrates is in fact executed, and it's the dialogue that takes place leading up to the actual execution itself. Socrates is like surrounded by his friends, and he's having this big philosophical dialogue about the afterlife and what he expects is going to happen after he dies, and why he's not afraid of dying. And then he takes the hemlock, and that's it. Socrates dies. Um, but the... The reason why Socrates is accused of corrupting the youth of Athens is a tricksy one. Um, Plato in the Apology presents this big defense for Socrates, and Socrates like gets up on the podium and he says, this is why I was running around Athens being a pain in the butt. Um, and he recognizes that like he's annoying. Uh, Plato knows that he's annoying. Um, most of the Athenians thought that Socrates was the biggest pain in the ass, and Socrates himself says that he is the gadfly of Athens. He is sort of stinging people um, in order to get them to move because he sees them as being sort of lazy and corrupt in their ideas and in their thinking. So he's constantly spurring them on. Um, so in the Apology, Socrates says that um, there was this guy who went to the Oracle at Delphi, and the Oracle at Delphi is the single most knowledgeable being in all of Greece at this point. The Oracle at Delphi was the sacred place to Apollo, who is himself the god of like seers and prophecy and insight. And according to you know whatever the Oracle says, you can bet that, that is the word, the truth from Apollo himself. So this guy goes to the Oracle at Delphi and he says, all right, Oracle at Delphi, who is the wisest man in Athens? And the Oracle at Delphi does not miss a beat. She responds, it's Socrates. And this is kind of surprising because Socrates is universally acknowledged to be annoying, but not terribly bright. So this guy comes back from the Oracle at Delphi and he goes to Socrates and he's like, Socrates, you will not believe what I just heard. I went to the Oracle at Delphi and I said, who is the wisest man in Athens? And they said it was you, Socrates. And Socrates' response is, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in the world. Like, I cannot possibly be the smartest man in Athens. Um, and he says, look around. There are all these teachers going around talking to all of these students um, they are obviously much smarter than I am because people pay them to teach young people how to think, how to, you know, make arguments in the demos, how to, uh, how, 
how to know what the gods want and what people want or how to succeed in business and in one's life um and this is true there were a whole bunch of teachers at this point in time like again since athens was a democracy there was a lot of power in being popular and in being persuasive and convincing so um if you were an athenian noble and you had your household and you had your wife wife and or wives and you were bringing up a young man someone who was going to inherit everything that belonged to you someone who was going to continue your legacy um it was very much in your best interest to get that young man a teacher someone who could teach him how to be a good citizen how to be persuasive how to get political power how to use your wealth wisely so the athenian nobles would hire these teachers these sophists and the sophists would come to your house and they would teach your student or they would bring the student to a separate location and teach a bunch of students as a group. They were basically paid tutors, um, sort of in the line of like a 19th century governor or governess um, or a tutor in that way. Um, and they were renowned as being really intelligent. Like the guys who were the smartest, the guys who seemed to be the most successful, they would be able to charge more, obviously. So, you know, it would be really impressive if you could get Gorgias to teach your kid. Um, and then that kid would go ahead and become a great noble and a great statesman and a great leader in Athens and get lots of honor for your household and your legacy would be secure. Um, Socrates, too, would go around and teach. But Socrates did not charge. Socrates would just like wander the streets and he would get a bunch of kids and random youths with nothing better to do who would follow him around and listen to what he had to say. Um, and, you know, he would teach, but he was not terribly well respected because, you know, how respectable can be the lesson that you get for free. Obviously, he would be an inferior choice than the really highly paid Gorgias or the really highly paid Phaedrus or any of the other major sophists at the time. So when Socrates says, I can't possibly be the wisest man in Athens, he's saying, well, obviously Gorgias must be the wisest man in Athens, or Phaedrus must be the wisest man in Athens. Any of these sophists who are getting paid to teach people, either they are the smartest man in Athens, they are way smarter than Socrates, or they're a sham, which wouldn't make any sense. Why would people be paying them if they don't actually have great wisdom to offer? So what he decides is, I'm going to prove the Oracle at Delphi wrong. I'm going to go around and I'm going to talk to all of these sophists, all of these really smart people, and they, I'm going to prove that they know what they're talking about, that they know all of these things that I do not know, and therefore I will not be the wisest man in Athens, and we can put this horrible rumor to rest. So he goes to Gorgias, and Gorgias' specialty is talking about what is just and what is good. So Socrates asks him, Gorgias, tell me what is justice, because I don't know. And if you know what justice is, and I don't know what justice is, then obviously you're smarter than I am, and the oracle at Delphi is wrong, and we'll just put this rumor to bed. But as he asks Gorgias these questions, he finds that Gorgias's answers are really big and impressive. So he'll say things like, well, the good is when the will of the stronger coincides with the will of the gods. And Socrates is like, okay, I have some more follow-up questions. Um, what do you mean by the will of the stronger? Who counts as stronger in a given situation? Um, which gods are we talking about? And what are their opinions on the matter? Like, what is good to the gods? Is it different from what is good to people? Or is it not different from what is good to people 
And Gorgeous is like, please slow down. We've, we need to take these questions one at a time. And he tries to answer each question, and Socrates just has more questions, and there are just questions and questions and questions. And finally, Gorgeous is like, dude, you're wasting my time. I am very highly paid. If you were not going to pay me like a couple drachmas each hour that we're going to have this conversation, then it's not worth my time. I got to go. And Socrates is like, okay. So... Gorgias is well-respected, and he talks a pretty good game, but he clearly doesn't actually understand what justice or the good is. So, apparently, he's not as smart as everybody thinks he is. But that doesn't mean that all the sophists are. So Socrates goes to the next sophist. He goes to Phaedrus, and Phaedrus's deal is beauty. And... So Socrates asks Phaedrus, okay, what is beauty? And Phaedrus goes on this big spiel, well, beauty is physical perfection. And Socrates is like, okay, uh, what do we mean by perfection? Like, is there a gradient here? Can Is there, like, people who are more perfect than others? Um, are we talking about, like, moral perfection? Or are we talking about purely physical perfection? Like, can you be good-looking but also a bad person? And just like with Gorgias, Phaedrus will answer some of these questions, and Socrates just has more questions. And finally, Phaedrus has to say, all right, Socrates, it's getting late, I need to go. And Socrates is like, okay, so Phaedrus also just talks a good game and actually doesn't know what he's talking about. And he repeats this process. He goes to sophist after sophist after sophist, and every sophist he talks to, it turns out they're way more good to look at. They're way more rhetorically powerful than they're actually knowledgeable. They don't actually understand these concepts that they claim to teach. So Socrates ultimately comes to the conclusion that he is the smartest man in Athens, not because of what he knows, but because he is the only person in Athens who is actually aware of how ignorant he is. He knows that he's an idiot, whereas Gorgias doesn't know that he's an idiot, and Phaedrus doesn't know that he's an idiot. Phaedrus and Gorgias are still thinking that they're all that, when in fact they don't know what they're talking about. Socrates is the one guy who knows what he's talking about, namely he knows that he doesn't know things. Um, and this becomes sort of the central tenet of all philosophy, um, because Plato repeats this concept, and Plato enshrines this concept. When Plato creates a school, the academy, uh, he actually inscribes the words, know thyself, over the top of the door. And this is considered the key insight, the basis of all philosophy. If you want to conduct philosophy, you have to start by admitting what you don't know. You have to know yourself. Um, so this is the defense that Socrates presents. And think about this for a moment. Like, he has literally been called into court for corrupting the youth of Athens with his crazy ideas, and he proceeds to go on this long, hour-long tirade about how everybody in Athens thinks that they're smart and actually isn't, and as a result, Socrates is the smartest guy in Athens. Needless to say, this doesn't go over well, which is why he fails to defend himself and is ultimately convicted and is ultimately condemned. He basically just walked into the courtroom and threw the middle finger at everybody in the room. Because these are all the people who have been hiring Gorgias and Phaedrus, as well as Gorgias and Phaedrus themselves. These are all the people who have been spending good money to have their students and their young their sons taught by these teachers. And Socrates is basically saying, well, those guys are idiots and you're an idiot for hiring them. So they condemn Socrates to death. But this is Plato's side of the story. And Plato comes at it from a 
very different perspective, one that we should sort of distrust, um, because Plato obviously had it in mind that we should be respecting what Socrates had to say. He put Socrates in the most positive light he can. Historically, we tend to get a different picture of how these events go down. Um, specifically, nobody likes Socrates from a historical perspective. Like if you talk to any of the historians of the, the various philosophers, any of the other Athenian like playwrights or writers at the time, they all think Socrates is just a pain in the butt and that he's just asking all of these obnoxious questions and he doesn't ever have anything really nice to say. He doesn't ever present any answers excuse me, answers or solutions. He's just, he's not a good guy and he's not as smart as he thinks he is and he's just a pain. Um, but he's also sort of like a benign pain. Like everybody just sort of puts up with him since he's not actually, you know, harassing people or charging for his lessons. He's really not, he's kind of harmless. But then there's this whole big deal that happens in Athens, this whole big political kerfuffle. Um, because at the same time as Socrates is running around in Athens, Athens is having a major fight with Sparta, the other major city-state at the time in Greece. And Sparta was like the antithesis of Athens in every way. Spartans were these highly trained military troops. Like from practically birth, they are sized up and sort of put into these strict living conditions, these extremely disciplined routines of exercise and military preparation. Um, and the women and the men are both trained basically equally, not in the same place, but basically as though they're the same. Um, and Athens at this point in time is at war with Sparta, um, which is not a great situation. Like, you do not want to pick fights with Sparta as a rule. But there's been a rivalry between Athens and Sparta for a long time because Sparta has this whole huge population of slaves and the Athenian democracy tends to spread. So the minute you get some Athenian, you know, know-it-all walking into Spartan territory, you inevitably end up with a slave rebellion because they're all like, hey, why can't we do democracy? And Sparta's like, shut up and get back to work. Um... So Sparta's really annoyed with Athens. They're always on the verge of war. And at this point, it's just fully broken out into conflict. And this is the famous Peloponnesian War. The Greek city-states all sort of picking sides in this battle and deciding whether to support Athens or Sparta or try to remain neutral. And it, it's especially significant because this is after um, the Greeks had all sort of united together to fight Persia. Like, if any of you are familiar with the story of the 300 and, like, this epic battle of 300 Spartans against an entire invading force of hundreds of thousands of Persian soldiers, and they ultimately lost, but it's, like, this tragic and simultaneously heroic victory in a sort of backward sort of way. Yeah, that was just a couple, like, not a couple, but, like, 50 to 100 years ago, and since then, everything has fallen apart as far as that's concerned. Uh, the Greeks did in fact push Spar or push Persia out of the Peloponnesian Peninsula, but it does not change the fact that all of those petty little grievances between the city-states are still a major issue. So at this point, Athens and Sparta are going to war, and both of them know that the key to this war is not going to be like military prowess at any given 
point because the Spartans will totally win on land, but the Athenians have the better navy, and that's kind of crucial in a naval or an archipelago environment. The key is going to be allies. So both Athens and Sparta are going around talking to all of their potential allies, trying to convince as many of the other city-states, as many of the other nations, to join their cause as is possible. So, you know, Athens is going to Corinth. Athens is going to Antioch. Athens is going to all these cities and saying, hey, back us up in the war against Sparta. Um, but... Obviously, nobody wants to pick a fight with Sparta, so it's often very difficult to convince these people to become your allies. Why shouldn't they just remain neutral and just stand by and retain all of their alliances and not make any new enemies? Um, so while both of these nations are sort of trying to like get as many allies as possible, um, Athens being a democracy is basically going is basically hearing every side of this story what should we do with our navy what is the best use of our forces what is the best way for us to get allies to beat sparta to make this happen and at the time there's this young guy named alcibiades and alcibiades is gorgeous um greek masculine standards of beauty are very very high they they value masculine attractiveness a lot part of that's because a lot of the greeks are bisexual um in fact they don't see things in terms of homosexuality or heterosexuality they think that like everybody is bisexual and as a result like there's just a certain phase in life where dudes will sleep with other dudes um and alcibiades is the guy that everybody wants to sleep with um, he is incredibly handsome, incredibly attractive, and he's got a silver tongue. Um, he is incredibly persuasive. Um, part of that is because his father has had enormous trouble trying to get Alcibiades to like calm down and behave like a rational citizen. Like he's very wild. So he's been Alcibiades' father has been hiring teacher after teacher after teacher to sort of like instill virtue in Alcibiades and it just is not taking so at the end of the day like his father just throws up his hands and he's like you, you know what I obviously can't do anything with you so you just do whatever don't care not my problem anymore and Alcibiades takes up with Socrates um, Alcibiades becomes one of Socrates' most enduring pupils but Socrates doesn't like him either um, in fact Alcibiades is frequently considered to be sort of like beyond redemption by Socrates. Socrates is like, yeah, he can listen to me all he wants, but it's not going to change his opinion. He is obviously too far gone. Um, but like I said, Alcibiades is super persuasive and super handsome. So he goes up to the Athenian Demos and he's got this plan for how Athens is going to beat Sparta. His plan is we're going to take the entire Athenian navy or like two thirds of the Athenian navy and we're going to sail west to Sicily, to Italy. And we're going to get as many of the city states in that area to join us as possible. And most of the intelligent generals and admirals at this point are like, this is a terrible idea. Um, because this leaves Athens really vulnerable to attack. If the entire point to the Athenian like con part of the Spartan conflict is that they can hold the Spartans at bay with their navy, sending two-thirds of the navy far away is absolutely the worst idea in the world. Um, but... 
Alcibiades' plan is they're going to like conquer a certain area of Sicily and southern Italy. And in the process, they're going to get a whole bunch of allies to join them. Like once they break the back of the power structure in Sicily, then they're going to have all these allies and they're going to get all of these friends to come back and to fight against Sparta with them. And everybody's really suspicious of this, except everybody's also really persuaded by Alcibiades being so damned attractive. So Alcibiades gets his way. And the way that it sort of shakes out is they send three major generals with this contingent of Athenian of the Athenian fleet to go to Italy and do this. Um, they send two really impressive statesmen, and they send Alcibiades himself. So the three of them go with the fleet over westwards towards Italy, and they find the city that they want to attack and break the back of. And... Now they're faced with another decision. What are they going to do? How are they going to attack? And the one guy, his plan is they're going to attack at night under cover of darkness, take them completely by surprise, and like overthrow the city in a week. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be this huge sneak attack. They'll never see it coming. They'll totally wipe them out, and then they can go around and get all the allies that they want. And then the other guy, he's like, okay, we're going to land, we're going to besiege the city and give it in like a month or two. We'll starve them out, and we're... They'll surrender, and then we'll get all the allies because, you know, we have demonstrated our power in this area. Now, Alcibiades, again, super attractive, super persuasive. His plan is that they're going to go around and get allies first. They're going to go to all the other Italian and Sicilian city-states. They're going to get a whole bunch of people behind them, and then they'll have a huge force, and they can steamroller over this city, and it's going to be awesome. And then they can just go back to Athens and defend it from Sparta. And this, honestly, is the worst plan, because there is no... There are no obvious allies at this point. There are no connections. Alcibiades doesn't hold sway in Italy. None of these guys have like family or relations who they can rely upon to get their allies. And while they're sailing around getting these allies, it would make sense that the city-state that they need to conquer is just going to get more and more fortified, get their own allies together. They're going to organize, and they might even be able to push back the Athenian forces. But because Alcibiades is so persuasive... He totally gets his way, and that's going to be the plan. They're going to sail around and get all these allies, and then come back and attack the city. And it fails, miserably. None, nobody wants to join Alcibiades. Nobody is impressed by his silver tongue over here because he can't speak the language. And as a result, they come knocking on the door of this city-state with, like, a handful of allies that they've picked up, and this city-state just flattens them. They destroy, like, a decent chunk of the fleet, all of the troops are like practically massacred. At least one of the three major generals in this situation are killed. It is a complete rout, a giant catastrophe, a total defeat for the Athenians. But in the cover of darkness, Alcibiades, being not just silver-tongued and really handsome, but also kind of a dick, sails away with his contingent of the forces, comes back to Athens under cover of darkness while half of the army is gone, proceeds to loot Athens, like he steals stuff from all of his neighbors, cuts off the, 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 uh, 
the stoic the stoikoi the like mailbox gods who are sort of like the personal household gods for each nation he like defaces all of them and then he takes all of his loot and he goes to sparta because he's got family there and they're going to take him in and protect him and then he's going to join forces with sparta and all of the allies that he has made are going to join up with the spartans basically he betrays athens on an order completely unheard of. Like, Benedict Arnold is a small fry compared to the sort of betrayal that Alcibiades perpetrates. So overnight, basically the Athenians go from having a kinda crappy plan, but at least a plan for defending themselves against Sparta, to being completely outmatched by Sparta. And yeah, they're gonna get wrecked in the future. Um, but most of all, they're so mad at Alcibiades. Um, they want Alcibiades' head on a plate, but they can't get him because Alcibiades is safely in Sparta in the strongholds of, their, of Athens' greatest enemies who they have just been like severely gutted by. So they can't execute him. They call for his head. They demand that Sparta return him to Athens so they can execute him. And of course, nobody pays any attention. So they need a scapegoat. They need somebody to blame. So naturally, they turn to the guy who taught Alcibiades. They say, all right, Socrates, you were running around with Alcibiades all this time. You were the one who were supposedly teaching him his lessons. And Socrates is like, don't pin this on me. I had nothing to do with this. I taught him completely differently. And they're like, shut up. You corrupted him. So when Miletus says that Socrates has corrupted the youth of Athens... This is exactly the charge that was leveled against him, but it is one youth in particular that, are, that is on the Athenians' mind, namely Alcibiades. They think that Socrates corrupted Alcibiades, that Alcibiades has basically conducted all of this horrific treason on Socrates' behalf or at Socrates' teaching, and as a result, they condemn Socrates to death. And for Plato, this is 100% unfair. This is just horrible as far as justice is concerned. This is incredibly inappropriate, incredibly unjust, and by extension, incredibly impious. The gods are going to be mad at Athens because they have killed Socrates for no good reason. So part of Plato's goal in this dialogue is not just to sort of talk about piety and what is piety and what does piety look like, but it's also going to be talking about where the Athenians were wrong in this business, how they condemned an innocent man to death, and as a result, committed impiety in their own right. So that's a lot of what's going on under the hood with Socrates, but Euthyphro's situation is also pretty complicated, so I want to talk about that as well. Um, so... When Socrates asks Euthyphro, okay, like, we talked about Miletus and we talked about my indictment, what about you? Why are you here in the King Archon's court? Um, Euthyphro presents this rather convoluted case. Apparently, Euthyphro is accusing his father of murder. And this, like, shocks Socrates just right out of the gate. Like, are you kidding? You are accusing your own father of murder? Because keep in mind, like we've been saying, you know, fathers are the head of the household in Athenian society. They run the show. You have, like, as a son, as, you know, any member of the household of a great Athenian noble, literally everything you have you owe to your father. 
um, your teachers, your household, your wealth, your honor, your reputation, any of the goods that you have, have accumulated, all of that is because your father went to war for you. Your father did business for you. Your father fought for you in the demos. Um, so you owe your father everything. So to bring an accusation against your father is unheard of in Athenian society. And that's why Socrates' first reaction is, what did he do? Like, did he kill your uncle? Did he kill another Athenian noble? Like, this must be a heavy-duty charge for you to be saying that your father is guilty of murder. And Euthyphro's story is way more complicated than that. Apparently, his father killed a servant. But the servant had killed a household slave in a drunken rage. So you've got this situation that's a little bit confusing and very complicated. Because you've got this servant who apparently killed a slave. And yeah, that's a bad thing. Everybody acknowledges that that's a bad thing. But that's kind of like a... It's kind of a bad thing in the sense of property. Slaves are not considered like full citizens in Athenian society. If you have slaves, it's probably because you won them in combat or because you bought them or because, you know, you you have a legitimate hold over them. It's a very different business than uh, than you would expect from like Amer or the North Atlantic slave trade, which was just ugly and awful. And while the Greek slave trade is also not great, it's considerably more civilized. But at the end of the day, again, slaves are pretty much just property. So for a servant to kill a slave is tantamount to him, like, breaking something really valuable in the household. So that basically puts the drunken rage servant, the servant who himself has killed a slave, in the position of, like, a homewrecker or a thief. Um, that is to say, somebody who you don't have any obligation to protect and who you would be totally justified in, like, killing or throwing out of your house. Now, killing a servant without any explanation is also frowned upon. Like, if, if Euthyphro's father had killed a servant and there was no extenuating circumstances, that would also be bad. The servant probably doesn't have full Athenian citizen status because he probably doesn't own land, but he probably is respected. He probably does have certain human rights that even a slave would not have. So... The father kills this servant, but even that isn't like murder in the traditional sense. It's not like he, you know, sees this murder go down and then like stabs the servant to death. No, he binds the servant. He has him tied up and then he chucks him in a ditch while he sends for the priest to figure out what to do. And in a certain sense, Euthyphro's father is doing everything right. Because the trick to, you know, somebody just killed somebody in my house is you want him out of your house as quickly as possible. Because the gods are probably going to bring judgment down on you if you are harboring a murderer or a fugitive. So the, the move to, like, chuck him in a ditch, it isn't necessarily the best solution, but it is a pretty viable one by Greek standards. Um... He, the fact that Euthyphro's father chucks him in the ditch while sending for the priest indicates that he's trying to be conscientious. He's not entirely sure what to do in this situation. So he's like, all right, let's get the servant out of the house. Let's make sure that there's no immediate judgment on my family. And then let's send for the priest and he'll tell us what to do. But, you know, Athenian travel and communication being what it is, chances are he can't get the priest in time. So, you know, he sends a servant to fetch the priest and the servant tries to find the priest and maybe he goes to the shrine and there's no priest there because he's off, like, taking care of some other business. So he has to go to wherever the priest is and maybe he's not there anymore. Like, it could get really confusing. It could take a long time. 
And in this case, while they're waiting for the priest to come back, the servant dies of exposure while sitting in the ditch. So, on the one hand, yes, this is murder, but it's not murder in the sense of, like, stabbing someone or shooting someone or maliciously, like, beating someone to death. This is murder by negligence, at best. Um, and at you know, more reasonably, this is not even murder. This was an accident. Um, this was, you know, Euthyphro's father doing all of the right things, but doing them in slightly the wrong way and can, like, the circumstances sort of conspiring against him so that this guy died, when really that was never the plan in the first place. So Socrates correctly is suspicious of Euthyphro at this point. He's like, why... This does not sound like the sort of thing that would cause a, a good son to con, to condemn their father for murder, to accuse him of a crime. Um, but notice especially when Euthyphro explains this, this is on page 19 in the textbook, bottom of the first column, or uh, 4C if you're looking at the, the Project Gutenberg file. He says, it is ridiculous, Socrates, for you to think that it makes any difference whether the victim is a stranger or a relative. One should only watch whether the killer acted justly or not. If he acted justly, let him go. But if not, one should prosecute. If, that is to say, the killer shares your hearth and table. The pollution is the same if you knowingly keep company with such a man and do not cleanse yourself and him by bringing him to justice. So... On the outset, we're inclined to agree with Euthyphro's argument. When he says that it shouldn't matter whether the victim is a relative or not, uh, you should only care about whether they acted justly or unjustly, like, we as Americans, we're totally behind that. Yeah, by all means, if, you know, my father killed someone, then I would probably be expected as a good citizen to report him. Um, it would not be appropriate for me to just hide this, to shovel it under the rug, then I would be conspiracy to murder, and that would make me also a criminal and guilty of a crime. Um, but Euthyphro's reasoning isn't quite that cut and dry. Admittedly, he acknowledges that, like, you should not give your father special treatment, which we would tend to agree with, but at the same time, are we really the ones who are responsible to report this? Like, if, if we in our family saw our father commit a crime, like, of a petty sort, maybe they shoplifted, maybe he, you know, did, was driving drunk, would it be our responsibility as a son or as a daughter to report him? Because that's a more tricky subject. Like, yes, it was wrong, but he's also still your father. You also still have an obligation to him. He is also still close to you. Sure, if you're trying to protect yourself, it makes absolute sense that you would report him to the cops. But as a rule, we in our society also acknowledge that some ties are thicker than the law. If he gets caught, yeah, we'll probably testify, but we're not going to be the one to rat him out. That would be slightly different. And that's the case with Euthyphro as well. When this whole thing went down, it is one thing for Euthyphro to say, yeah, something weird went down in my house, it was bad, and to be honest about it when asked. It's another thing for him to go out of his way to legitimately prosecute his own father, to bring a charge against him. Um, that's a whole nother matter. And Socrates is very suspicious of this, and for good reason. Because when Euthyphro actually talks about his motivation in that passage that I talked about, he goes very quickly from, it doesn't matter whether, whether it's a matter of your family or not. It's all, all that matters is justice. But he qualifies that by saying, if that is the killer shares your hearth and table. 
The pollution is the same if you knowingly keep company with such a man and do not cleanse yourself and him by bringing him to justice. Euthyphro is not trying to protect justice here. He is not trying to do the right thing. He is covering his butt. He is saying that if he breaks bread, if he stays under the same roof with a man who has killed someone, he could be polluted. He could be considered dirty. He could unknowingly like offend the gods. So Euthyphro's attitude here isn't towards you know justice at all costs. It's how do I keep myself from offending the gods? It's fundamentally selfish. So Socrates questions him on this. And importantly, this question is about Euthyphro's authority and knowledge. We've heard Euthyphro say that he knows stuff about the gods. And in fact, it apparently it is the case that he is recognized as some sort of like quasi-prophet, but not necessarily one of the good ones. So like he says earlier on you know, on page 18, right around uh, 3C, he says, whenever he speaks of divine matters in the assembly and foretell the future, they laugh me down as if I were crazy. And yet I have foretold nothing that did not happen. So Euthyphro thinks that he's a seer, a prophet, but everybody else thinks that he's a laughingstock. And we should already be a little suspicious of Euthyphro and the knowledge that he has just based on that line. He seems to be trying to like rope Socrates into this to be like, hey, you and me, Socrates, we are misunderstood. We, the Athenians all think they know what's going on, but really we have the truth, we know what's up, and they just don't respect us because they're jealous. And Socrates is like, I don't know if it's jealousy, and I definitely don't want to be associated with you in that sense. So Euthyphro's sort of authority here, the fact that he can say to Socrates, oh, I know I'm doing the right thing, should give us pause. And it does work that way for Socrates. So he says back at um, 4E, he says, By Zeus, Euthyphro, you think that your knowledge of the divine and of piety and impiety is so accurate that when those things happened, as you say, you have no fear of having acted impiously and bringing your father to trial? And Euthyphro defends himself. He says, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I know exactly what the gods want. Yes, it may look like foolishness to some, but I've got special inside information. And Socrates is suspicious. He seems, he acts as though Euthyphro is, in fact, 100% knowledgeable. Socrates' next move is to say, all right, then teach me. If you are so confident that what you're doing is right when I can't tell what's going on, then absolutely I want to learn from you. Because if I'm going to be facing Miletus, if I'm going to be defending myself on the grounds of not being impious, then I'm going to need all the help that I can get. I need someone as knowledgeable as you claim to be. But on the other hand, he recognizes it is just a claim. Is Euthyphro really as knowledgeable as he pretends to be? Because Euthyphro's confidence is completely unmatched. Like Socrates looking at this situation is like, I don't know how you're getting any sense of like what's right or wrong in this situation. This is really confusing. The father killed the servant and the servant killed the slave and the father didn't kill the servant by killing him but left him in a ditch while he went for the priest. Like, is that right? Is that wrong? He doesn't know. But Euthyphro says that he does. So Socrates is sort of taking a step back and saying, okay, do you, are you really so confident? Is your confidence justified? Do you have the knowledge you claim to have? Which is where the dialogue proper really starts. And I know that it's been like a good hour long lecture before we've even gotten to it, but this context is important. This is what we're gonna be kicking around for the rest of the dialogue. Um, this is sort of what every, every Athenian citizen is thinking as we start diving into what actually is piety. Um, so this is sort of our project here. 
Socrates is going to ask Euthyphro questions because Euthyphro has presented himself as an authority. He knows exactly what he's doing. He has 100% confidence that he knows what the gods want. He knows what piety looks like. He knows that what he's doing is right. Socrates does not have that confidence. So he's going to question Euthyphro and try and get that knowledge. What is piety? So he himself can be that confident and he can approach Miletus and he can get his case dismissed. Um... So Socrates starts by asking Euthyphro a rather impressive little question, an impressive detail that he wants. He says, tell me now, this is the bottom of page 19, this is 5c, tell me now by Zeus what you just now maintained you clearly knew. What kind of thing do you say that godliness and ungodliness are, both as regards murder and other things, or is the pious not the same and alike in every action, and the impious the opposite of all that is pious and like itself? And everything that is to be impious presents us with one form or appearance insofar as it is impious. Now, there are a couple of key things to notice here. First, we're talking about piety. Godliness and ungodliness is the translation in this particular place. Um, and we're going to try and pin down what is piety as a sort of concept. Um, and Socrates insists that we talk about it in terms of its form, its appearance. It has to be something consistent across the board. What does piety look like in all situations? This is especially important because the first definition that Euthyphro brings up is, I say that the pious is to do what I am doing now, to prosecute the wrongdoer. And he immediately follows this up with uh, an example. He says, okay, so in the myth of Zeus's overthrow of Kronos, the Titanomachy, um, Zeus knows that Kronos, his father, is doing something wrong. Kronos is eating all of his babies. So Zeus, like, attacks Kronos, and he cast he attack he, like, frees all of the children that Cronus has swallowed and they go to war against Cronus and they depose him. Um, and he stresses this was Zeus's father, but Zeus was justified because Cronus had done something wrong and it doesn't matter that Cronus was Zeus's father. Zeus is still responsible to right this wrong, to act justly. And he's like, since Zeus does that to his father, I am doing that to my father when this bad thing has been done. And Socrates is like, okay, Let's take this apart, because there's a lot there to unpack. Um, the first thing that Socrates challenges is Euthyphro's conviction with respect to this story. He says, I find it hard to accept things like that being said about the gods, and it is likely to be the reason why I shall be told I do wrong. Now, however, if you, who have full knowledge of such things, share their opinions, then what we must agree with them too, it would seem. For what are we to say, we who agree that we ourselves have new knowledge of them? Tell me, by the God of friendship, do you really believe these things are true? What he's basically asking here is, do you buy into that story? Because that's a famous myth. That's one of the myths that Hesiod presents. Um, and it gets a lot of traction. Hesiod and Homer are the two main sources of myth for the Greek culture. Um, so Socrates is basically saying, like, do you, do you buy into the myths? Do you agree that this is how Zeus behaves, and this is how Cronus behaves, and this is how Athena behaves, and this is how Aphrodite behaves? Um, and Euthyphro, rather than, like, sort of suspecting this, he says, yeah, absolutely. Like, forget Cronus and Zeus. Yeah, that sounds weird, but I can tell you way crazier stories than Cronus and Zeus. And he's, like, about to launch into this whole spiel, and, like, Socrates has to cut him off. Like, please, all right, we don't want to actually get on a sidetrack about myth. We want to talk about how piety works and how myth ties into that may be important, but let's, let's wait on that. 
But it's important, too, that Socrates emphasizes this, points this out. Because the next question he asks is, do you agree that they participate in fights, that the gods are in discord, that they conflict with one another on a regular basis? And Euthyphro agrees to this, absolutely. Just think of the Trojan War, all the gods are fighting each other. It, it happens all the time. And Socrates makes a note of this. This is not what he's going to address right now. This is not his initial problem with Euthyphro's definition that the pi pious or piety is doing what he's doing and prosecuting the wrongdoer. But he is making a note of this because he's going to bring this up later. It's going to be important in a later part of this argument. So keep this in mind because we're going to come back to it. The thing that Socrates is saying here, in addition to the fact that he's sort of suspicious about the gods and about the myths, and he even points out that he thinks that that's why Miletus is charging him, um, and it's true that Plato occasionally does both modify and cast some doubt on the myths as they stand, which could be itself impiety, he does, Socrates' argument isn't actually based on whether or not these myths are grounded in truth. Um, he's not out to question the myths, not at this point. Um, instead, he says that this isn't a good definition because it actually isn't a definition at all. It's just an example. Um, Euthyphro is saying what piety is what I'm doing, prosecuting wrongdoing, but Socrates says, you know, you have to agree there's other pious stuff. Like, you, you can be pious by doing any number of actions. Piety is not just limited to you prosecuting your father in this particular case. Um, and Euthyphro says, yeah, of course, that's, that's what I meant. But Socrates stresses when he asked for a definition, he asked for the form, the formal definition. And this is an incredibly important term in Plato. Um, Plato's philosophy is all based on this idea of ideas, these forms. And in fact, Plato has in other dialogues this really robust development of this theory of forms. For Plato, there's actually like a hierarchy to reality. Um, he thinks that most of the things that we interact with on a regular basis are really not that real at all. And in the, in the Republic, which is where he sort of most develops this theory of forms, although it can be found in the Phaedo and in the Mino and in lots of other places, um, and is sort of in its nascent stages here in the Euthyphro, um, he actually, in the Republic he phrases this as a divided line. He says that there's four sections to this line. There's like a bottom section, which itself is divided into two, and then there's a top section, which is also divided into two. So you've got four sections total. Now the bottommost section, as far as reality is concerned, is what he calls shadows, images, like pictures of things or reflections of things. So obviously something that is just reflected or is an image is less real than anything else. A picture of a tree is less real than a tree. That just makes sense. Um, so, but this is like the lowest form. And he says that most of the things that we're addressing in, in like our speech or in art or in, you know, day-to-day -day conversation, these are just words. These are just images. These are just concepts and not the, the actual objects themselves, not the ideas themselves. They're representations. They're images. And these are the lowest form of reality. These have the least objective reality to them. But the next step up is real objects. Like this is still on the bottom half of the divided line. Um, so the if like a reflection of a tree is the least real kind of tree, 
for Plato, a tree is the next least real. Um, so when you look outside and you see a tree and you like touch it or you know scrape your fingernails against it or you know smell the way that its leaves or flowers smell, for Plato that's still very unreal. Um, it is still not an interaction with something substantial. It doesn't have true reality. It's just an instantiation. Um, what Plato is more interested in are these forms, treeness. What makes something green? What makes something beautiful? What makes something good or just? So that's the highest level um, for him. The third, the third lowest level, the second highest on this divided line, that's the realm of mathematics, number, uh, shape, things like that. These sort of abstracted concepts. But note that shape and these abstracted concepts, things that we sort of like only have in our minds, those are for Plato more real than physical objects. Like a tree is less real than a line for Plato. And part of the reason why he stresses this is because Plato is absolutely enamored with Euclid and Euclidean geometry. Um, at least 100 years before Plato is writing, uh, Euclid published his geometry, like all of his sort of uh, observations about the way that numbers work and the way that shapes work and the way that space works. And this, this is almost tantamount to religion in certain sectors of Greek society. Like there is this whole thing where like the fifth postulate is this super respected entity. And you know, a as you become more and more knowledgeable about geometry, like the secrets of how alternate interior angles are congruent will be imparted to you. Um, and like, it's, it's weird to think because you know, we all have public education and we all deal with geometry and we all like hate every minute of our math classes um but for them like this was tantamount to religion like the triangle is practically a god for the euclidians um in a very real sense and for plato that's also kind of the case so he sees you know triangles squares numbers angles um these have more reality than trees and rocks and people um, but even more than, than mathematics, even more than number, are these forms themselves. Um, and these forms are like big, wide-ranging abstract concepts as a rule. Things like capital P, piety, or capital B, beauty, or capital J, justice, or capital G, goodness. Um, and in fact, in Plato's construction, goodness, the good, is the most important of all the forms. It is the form that makes all forms what they are, but we'll talk about that in a later lecture. Um, what he's emphasizing here is that these forms, this is what imparts reality to the things that we interact with in the world. So if a tree is not real, it's because treeness is more real than the tree itself. What makes a tree a tree is more important than any individual instantiation of a tree. The tree that is in your backyard is less real than the concept of tree as it pertains to all trees everywhere all the time. So as a philosopher, Plato and Socrates, or Socrates in Platonic Dialogues, is always trying to get at the form. What makes all these things the same? And the key is that the relationship of forms to objects is sort of reciprocal. Um, so take beauty, for example. 
Like, there are lots of beautiful things out there. You have beautiful songs, and you have beautiful flowers, and you have beautiful movies, and you have a beautiful photograph, and you have a beautiful person. And for Plato, all of these things, all of these individual objects, the person and the song and the movie, they all share in being beautiful. So the question for Plato isn't so much, is this object beautiful, as what makes it beautiful? What is the common denominator among all beautiful things? Because that... That's the form of beauty. But this relationship isn't like we abstract beauty from these objects. The relationship is beauty is the thing that exists first and it endows these objects with beauty. So the beautiful flower isn't beautiful because of some exterior characteristic. It's not because of like something in the flower. It's beautiful because beauty is imparted to the flower by capital B beauty the form of beauty itself. So when we say like the flower is informed by beauty, that's what we mean. It has a beautiful form because beauty has endowed it with this form. It participates in beauty. Um, and this is how all the forms work. So when we're talking about the form of piety in this text, what we're saying is what makes all actions pious? What is the common denominator for everything that is pious? And the important thing about this particular definition that Euthyphro comes up with, this first definition that piety is to do what he is doing to prosecute the wrongdoer, is that it's really just one example and we can't do anything with it. It isn't piety, it's just one example of piety. What we need to find out is what are the rules? What are What is piety across the board? What are the characteristics of all pious things? What is the form? Um, so when Euthyphro is challenged by this, he agrees. You'll notice that Euthyphro likes it. Most of his lines are something along the lines of, yes, Socrates, or of course, Socrates. Mostly Socrates is just kind of leading him by the nose through this dialogue, which is like most platonic dialogues. So he agrees that, yeah, this definition is not going to work. So Socrates asks him for a new definition, something that is formal. And the second definition that's, that Euthyphro comes up with is, Piety is what is dear to the gods. So if we look down at paragraph 7, what is dear to the gods is pious, what is not is impious. And Socrates initially likes this definition because it is, in fact, a form. It gives us a rule. It allows us to define piety in this sense. It gives us a sort of code to recognize piety every time that we encounter it in the wild and also to sort of observe what it is that contributes to an object being pious or an action being pious. Um, so now we've got something that we can work with. What is dear to the gods is pious and what is not is impious. But again, we have Socrates sort of like quietly sneaking in another philosophical concept to buttress this definition. So uh, right above 7b, uh, we have Socrates responds, come, this, let, come then, let us examine what we mean. An action or a man dear to the gods is pious, but an action or a man hated by the gods is impious. They are not the same, but quite opposite, the pious and the impious. Is that not so? What Socrates is stressing here is that piety and impiety can't be the same thing. You can't have an action that is both pious and impious at the same time and in the same way, because that wouldn't make any sense. And in fact, what Socrates is sort of dancing around here with his language is probably the most crucial axiom in logic 
anywhere. It is the foundation of all philosophy, all rationality, all logic across the board. And it's what we philosophers tend to call the law of non-contradiction. Um, and that's roughly phrased as he phrased it here. A thing cannot both be and not be at the same time and in the same way. So, for example, like if you have a chair, which I assume that you're sitting in one right now, maybe you're sitting on the floor, good for you if you are, and if you're doing exercise, it's even better. But if you are sitting in a chair, that chair has to be a color. Um, now, it could be a whole bunch of colors. It could have like a check pattern or it could have polka dots. I don't even know. Um, but if you look at your chair, at any space on the chair, it has to be a color. Like, there is no possibility that your chair is colorless. Even if it is clear, even if it is transparent, even if it is white, it has a color in that sense. And the important thing is that the chair can't both be that color and can't and not be that color at the same time and in the same spot. So if my chair is blue, if my entire chair is top to bottom blue, then it can't both be blue and not be blue. Now, if I've got a check pattern, sure, I can say the chair is both blue and red, but I can't say that it is both blue and not blue. It can be not blue in one place and blue in another place, but it can't be both blue and not blue at the same spot at the same time. Like, even if I paint the chair red after it was blue, I'm not able to say that it's blue when it is in fact red after I've painted it. So it's got to be different at that point. And this is especially important because if you lose that distinction, if things stop being discrete in this way, if you lose an object's identity and it can both be the case and not be the case, then everything falls apart. You can't prove anything. Like, this is on par with, you know, all those fancy mathematical proofs that prove that one equals two. Like, if one can equal something other than one, then all math falls apart. If I can prove that 1 plus 1 equals 2, but also that 1 equals 2, then I can say, well, in that case, 2 plus 1 equals 2, because 2 is equal to 1, and 1 plus 1 equals 2. I can say that 2 plus 1 equals 3, well, like we would normally say. I can also say that 2 plus 1 equals 4, because 2 is equal to 1, and therefore, by saying that 1 equals 2, 2 plus 1 is the same as saying 2 plus 2, and therefore 4. But even more importantly, it is one more step to say that 3 equals 1, that 4 equals 1, that 5 equals 1, and indeed you can say that every number in the entire numerical system is equal to itself, which means that math is no longer meaningful. All numbers collapse into one another. Um, likewise, all propositions will collapse into one another if you cannot, from the outset, say that a thing cannot both be and not be at the same time and in the same way. Um, you have to preserve these objects' identity in order to be able to say anything relevant about them. In order for piety to mean something, it can't both be pious and impious at the same time and in the same way. And the reason why Socrates stresses this point at this time is this is the problem that is inherent in Euthyphro's second definition. When Euthyphro says that what is dear to the gods is pious and what is not is impious, he fails to take into account the fact that there are multiple gods. And this is what Plato then goes on to stress. Remember when we talked a little bit earlier about how Plato had like challenged Euthyphro's idea of myths being viable truths about the gods and got that particular detail from Euthyphro that Euthyphro, like Homer, like Hesiod, believes, believes that the gods disagree, that they fight over things. Well, this is where Plato calls him out on that. He says, all right, Euthyphro, if the gods in fact fight, what do you think they fight over? Isn't it most likely 
that they fight over the same things that we fight over, things like what is good and what is bad, what is just and what is unjust, what is pious and what is impious. And if that's the case, if the gods disagree about what is pious and impious, then isn't it reasonable to assume that one thing that a person does can be both pious to, say, Zeus and impious to, say, Ares? That it's pious to Athena, but impious to Aphrodite? And if that's the case, if the gods disagree, and if piety is malleable in this way, if it can be pious to one god and impious to, one, to another at the same time, then what you're saying is the same action is both pious and impious at the same time and in the same way, which means it doesn't mean anything. It's not something we can use. If the gods disagree, then piety itself is subjective. It falls apart at the slightest prodding. So as a result, that definition is just not going to work. Um, it's formal, it gives us a good rule, but it is itself not consistent. It self-contradicts. And Euthyphro has to backpedal on this. Um, but Euthyphro's concern isn't so much that he's committed a logical faux pas. His concern is, well, what I'm doing is definitely pious. All the gods agree that what I'm doing is pious. And Socrates is like, do we really have to deal with this? Because this is just a tangent. Um, we were in the middle of talking about the definition. We were trying to correct a, a bad definition by making it more specific, more careful. And now Euthyphro is all de getting defensive again about, oh, well, you, it, I'm right at least. Like, I'm doing the right thing. The gods definitely all agree that what I'm doing is pious. But importantly, how Euthyphro phrases this is in terms of what murder is. So Euthyphro says, you know, all the gods agree that unjust killing is impious. And Socrates responds, yeah, no, duh. Um, by saying murder, by saying unjust killing, you were implying the impiety already. None of the gods disagree that killing unjustly is wrong. And just think, like, how many people do you know who would go up into a court case and say, yeah, your honor, I totally murdered that person. But really, like, is murder all that bad? I mean, I mean, people occasionally kill each other all the time. Like, it's fairly common. So, you know, why should you punish me about it? Let, let's just, like, make murder good. Because, you know, who doesn't want to murder someone? Nobody makes that argument. Like, nobody has gone before a judge and said, you know what, judge? Yeah, I totally murdered that person, and I was totally right about it. No, what they say is either it wasn't murder, like I killed this person in self-defense, and therefore I'm completely justified. It's not murder. It's not unjust killing. Or they dispute about whether they did it at all. They'll say, I wasn't there, Your Honor. Like, it wasn't me. Sure, that guy is dead, but it's not my fault. Um, the question isn't, is murder wrong? Everybody across the board agrees that murder is wrong. That's why we call it murder. Um, if it was just killing for another reason, then we would give it a different name. Like, we have a name for manslaughter, and we recognize that it's more understandable, more defensible, and thus punished less harshly than murder is. Murder across the board is wrong. The question is, was it murder? And did you do it? So what Socrates is pointing out here is, like, nobody says that murder is just, that it's unjust to prosecute murderers. What Euthyphro is saying is basically self-evident. It is tautological. It is incredibly obvious and beyond dispute. But it's also irrelevant. What we're arguing about isn't, is X 
specifically is x unjust action unjust what we're arguing about is is this particular action unjust and what does it look like for an action to be unjust or impious um, everybody agrees that it is pious to prosecute wrongdoers the question is is it wrongdoing what is wrongdoing how does it compare to doing the right thing how can we distinguish between doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing but Euthyphro is also sort of given away the next move in this argument. So when Socrates is talking him through this, saying like, this is just a red herring, it's not a big deal, obviously murder is punishable, it is bad, we all agree about this, none of the gods disagree about this, it is all straightforward, but the question is, did your father do a bad thing, or is your father acting unjustly, and is it just to then prosecute him? These are the key questions. But what Euthyphro said initially was all the gods agree that prosecuting murder is the correct thing to do, that it is pious to do this. So Socrates cherry picks this detail and says, is that our next definition? Is definition three what all the gods consider pious? And that's where we're going to pick up in the next lecture with this third definition as we go forward in the second half of the text. So thanks for bearing with me. I realized that this was a very long lecture, but um, honestly, it was half as long as it would, would have been if I had done it in, in class. Usually that's like an entire week and thus two hour and 15 minute sessions. So thanks for bearing with me. I hope that this was more informative. If you do have any questions about the text, feel free to bring them up in the discussion boards or just email me directly um, if it's a little bit more private or personal or whatever. Um, just, you know, keep in touch. Make sure that I'm seeing everything you're doing. Uh, and make sure that you get those uh, those discussion board posts up by the end of each week. Um, like every Friday, you should have at least two of those discussion board questions answered. Um, and keep on with the reading quizzes as well, because if you're listening to this, it's probably the week before the first of the reading quizzes. So by Friday of this coming week, I guess that's September... Uh, 20th that'll be our first reading quiz so make sure that you get it done um, anyway I'm signing off and I'll have another lecture up for the second half of the Euthyphro in the next week or so so thanks for listening <laughs>